This is the Zodiac speaking. By the way, have you cracked the last cipher I sent you? I'm mildly curious as to how much money you have on my head now. I hope you do not think I was the one who wiped out that blue meanie with a bomb at the cop station, even though I talked about killing children with one. This is the Zodiac speaking. I'd like to see some nice Zodiac buttons wandering around town. Everyone else has these buttons like Peace, Black Power, Melvin Eats Blubber, etc. Well, it would cheer me up considerably if I saw a lot of people wearing my button. Please, no nasty this ones like that. This is the Zodiac now. speaking. I shot a man sitting in a parked car with a 38 Zodiac 12 SFPD zero. The map coupled with this code will tell you where the bomb is set. You have until next fall to dig it up. I ask him to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide, or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out, or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want him to water ski across the surface of a poem waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. Begin by beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. Hello, my name is Colin Waters and uh, I'm a writer and I'm an editor and I work at the Scottish Poetry Library. And the poem that I read there at the start of the show was Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins. And I'm Adam O'Davis. I'm a teacher, a photographer and a poet whose debut collection, Index of Haunted Houses, was published last year by Saraband Books. Now, as I mentioned, uh, that poem at the start was uh, Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins. And um, as you don't need me to tell you, it's a rather light-hearted introduction to what promises to be a very dark show. The conceited Collins poem is that some people think of poems as codes to be cracked, violently, if necessarily. And that ties in very nicely with the film that we're going to be looking at. David Fincher's 2007 classic, Zodiac. His account of the infamous series of murders that took place in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 60s and early 70s. Later, in our regular slot that ends the show, we have a guest appearance by the poet Diana Maria Delgado, who will read a prose poem inspired by Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, as mentioned, it was directed by Fincher, who's shown an abiding interest in serial killers. I'm sure you have seen it. His second film, Seven, which came out in 1995, featured a serial killer whose MO was murders based on the seven deadly sins. And he's also one of the creators of the Netflix series Mindhunter, which looked at the FBI's development of profiling as a way to track down and apprehend serial killers. Fincher, the scriptwriter of Zodiac, James Vanderbilt, and the producer, Brad Fisher, they were all growing up in the San Francisco area when the Zodiac killer was at large. Fisher recalls his father telling him that the reason a police car was following the school bus was that the Zodiac Killer had threatened to shoot out a school bus's wheels. The film is based on the book Zodiac by Robert Graysmith, who, as we'll hear, is also a character in the film. Fincher and Vanderbilt also undertook original research when they prepared to make the film. They interviewed some of the principal characters themselves. I think the film is brilliant. I'm just going to put it out there. I think it's a great, great film. But when I was doing a bit of research, uh, I was flabbergasted to learn that the box office performance was quite lukewarm Mm. and it received no Oscar nominations. To put that in a bit of context, Fincher's next film, which I would describe as pretty underwhelming, uh, (laughs) The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, that got 13 nominations and Zodiac got none. That's incredible. To be fair, 2007 was a pretty good year for film. Uh, Other films that got nominated were There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, and The Assassination of Jesse James, but no love for Zodiac. That's crazy. 
I've, I've yacked on about the sort of background to making this film. Adam, how would you describe the plot? I think Zodiac is a, it's a straightforward, serious-minded crime thriller about the fruitless hunt for one of America's most infamous serial killers. Uh, and, you know, as the serial killer's identity was never discovered, right, the, the identity of the Zodiac is still uh, at large, I guess, in our minds. The film focuses on the individuals who led the hunt for him, which is namely uh, San Francisco Chronicle cartoonist Robert Graysmith, Chronicle reporter Paul Avery, and police inspector Dave Toski. And how their growing obsession with this seemingly unsolved case ended up doing serious damage to their own lives. What makes this film great, and why I consider it to represent, I think like you, the zenith of Fincher's work as a filmmaker, is its cinematographic precision, um, its obsession with details. Fincher is a notoriously meticulous filmmaker, and I think he finally found a subject that really kind of honored his own obsessive personality. You know, another thing about this film is just the patience it has in exploring the individual and citywide psychological fallout this case caused. The film's first 45 minutes come on like a horror movie you know, as they depict several Zodiac murders in visceral detail. But what follows for the following two hours is an increasingly processless procedural. Whatever payoff there might ultimately be, and there isn't, pales in comparison to the human toll, not just Zodiac's murder victims, but also those obsessed with him. Their lives are ultimately undone by the existential reality of this serial killer. There are no answers, just questions. They aren't even grasping at straws, but it air itself. I look back at Fincher's uh, filmography yeah. and I realised that out of about the dozen films that he's made, I've only ever actually rewatched four of them. I think that it's easily you know, as we've said, his best film but you know, have you noticed if you look at his films it's definitely there's a sort of um, mm-hmm. an interest in grand schemes and big ideas and people who are putting plans into practice that other people might not be aware of. So there's a game. I mean the title itself speaks for itself. Uh, <laughs> Fight Club, Tyler Durden's uh, master plan is not really revealed until the, the, the film is practically over. The social network, where we're all living with Zuckerberg's right, yeah. <laughs> machinations. Absolutely. Uh, and then in Gone Girl, you'll recall that um, Amy, the, I guess the anti-heroine, has a very um, involved scheme, which ultimately leads to psychic torture of Affleck. I hadn't considered that, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he, he is a director who is fascinated by these kind of games. And to that point, what raises my estimation of Zodiac in, in his filmography is the fact that there's no game in Zodiac. You know, even Fight Club, which, which I think is, you know, a pretty tremendous film. I still prefer the book. In the ending moments of that film, it reveals itself to, to kind of have this game-like component to it. And that cheapens the meaning or the, the narrative behind it. I mean, you know, Gone Girl 2, once the ultimate plan is revealed, it feels like a little bit of a letdown. And what I liked about Zodiac was it, it seems like maybe the most honest film that Fincher has made on some level, in that it's exploring a game without a resolution, that there isn't uh, some kind of quick, easy fix, uh, some alternate personality, some... Uh, as of yet unrevealed plan to uh, that, that he can spring upon the audience to, to show them that he's been in control all along. I mean, I think it's interesting, as I mentioned, that he did his own research mm. for the film. I kind of feel that if by doing that, he realized that is what people are interested in. And, that, and in fact, if you reveal who the killer is, people are disappointed usually. <laughs> they don't want to know. The mystery is more, more interesting, I think. Absolutely. I mean, think of how bad the Friday the 13th movies got after you realized that <laughs> Exactly. It was Jason's mom. Who was it? It wasn't even Jason. It was someone. Yeah. This is this is the only podcast you're going to listen to this week, folks. It mentions um, David Fincher, Friday the Thirteenth, and Shakespeare. So <laughs> I want you to be aware of that. We're ticking all the boxes. They should have a bingo uh, session of this game. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
Adam, when we were discussing which films we thought would make interesting windows into poetry, you chose Zodiac. You see a connection between the film's fascination with codes and ciphers and with poetic form as a mystery, albeit one with a solution, is that fair to say? I think so, yeah. I think that any time we apply the, the notion of form to anything, you know, be it a wristwatch or a poem, we introduce a puzzle. And, and the pleasure in a puzzle is that even in the deepest throes of frustration, we know that there's an answer. Right. There, there's always a, a solution to it. And that answer is, is one that's often used to compel our interest when it comes to mysteries. I've heard that the reason people like to read and watch mysteries is because it makes them feel smart, you know, as if they're solving the unsolvable right along with the characters. You know, so these answers give us a sense of completion, closure of, of success. And poetry has, for better or worse, often been considered a classic kind of puzzler, thanks to its focus on form and meaning. But what I love about this idea in poetry is that it isn't just the reader who might need to do a little code breaking, but the poet too. You know, I think of uh, sonnets, huzzles, sestinas, villanelles. You know, these are all forms that require technical skill, but so too does language, you know? So what we arrive at through poetry is the question of language itself and, and how through various forms we can call into question what language means to us and, and for us. Um, all right, this is getting a little esoteric, so let's take it back down to earth through an example. I'm co-esoteric, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to overshoot here after, uh, after Friday the 13th, but one of my poetic heroes, Harriet Mullen, has a book called Sleeping with a Dictionary, which everyone should own if they don't already. Uh, this book is heavily under the influence of the Ulipo, uh, who are uh, a French group of literary theorists who seek to expand literature's possibilities through mathematical formulas and logic games. Um, good examples of that would be Italo Calvino's uh, Invisible Cities or uh, Georges Perec's uh, Avoid. Uh, and so it has a number of these different exercises you can do uh, in, in trying to build new possibilities through form and language. And so one example of this would be an N plus seven exercise. In French, it's S plus seven. In English, it's N plus seven because N stands for noun. So you take an existing text and then you replace every noun with the seventh entry after it in a dictionary. The result is uncannily familiar and also totally original. Or in film speak, to get less esoteric again, the result is like the Terminator's uh, cybernetic organism, you know, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. So, Colin, would you do me a favor and, and read this, uh, this poem for me here? Oh, yes, definitely. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done? If hairs be wires, black wires grow in her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress when she walks treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven... I think my love as rare as any she belied by false compare. Thank you. And I'm sure all of you out there in podcast land recognize that. That's, of course, uh, Shakespeare's Sonnet 130. What we have now is Harriet Mullen's N plus seven version of the sonnet, which is called Dim Lady. My honey bunches peepers are nothing like neon. Today's special at Red Lobster is redder than her kisser. If liquid paper is white, her racks are institutional beige. If her mop were slinkies, dishwater slinkies would grow on her noggin. 
I have seen tablecloths in Shakey's pizza parlors, red and white, but no such picnic colors do I see in her mug. And in some minty fresh mouthwashes, there is more sweetness than in the garlic breeze my main squeeze wheezes. I love to hear her rap, yet I'm aware that Muzak has a hipper beat. I don't know any Marilyn Monroe's, my ball and chain is plain from head to toe. And yet, by gosh, my scrumptious Twinkie has as much sex appeal for me as any lanky model or platinum movie idol who's hyped beyond belief. I love that. <laughs> that is brilliant. I particularly like the use of the word noggin. It's something you don't get enough in poetry. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I tell my students is that every time you write a poem, there should be one word in there that does not belong, but that you have somehow through the alchemy of poetry made made work. And I think noggin is uh, is fantastic you know and, and i love that we end up with this very uh different and yet sim similar piece in some ways you know this is clearly set in, in the southland of california but it, it still has a lot in common with that that shakespeare piece and so in the end you know i suppose the poet's job is to be code breaker and, and code maker at once so yeah we, we've been emailing obviously beforehand we do email each other and prepare <laughs> for this podcast yeah yeah giving it all away now you were telling me about a fascinating book length poem that's written in code i mean that couldn't be more apropos for for what we're discussing what is this poem adam john hollander whose guide rhymes reason is basically a bible for any poet interested in form wrote a book in 1974 called Reflections on Espionage, which is a book-length poem written in a code that I fully admit eludes me, though despite that illusion, I still find much delight. The collection's superficial conceit is that a spy named Cupcake, uh, who's presumably Hollander, is writing missives to his handler detailing the exploits of other poets who go under code names. So for example, in the book, Alan Asprin is actually Alan Ginsberg, Image refers to James Merrill, and Steampump refers to Auden, uh, apparently because Auden had a beloved toy uh, as a child that uh, was a steampump operated or, or something like that. I'm, I'm not quite sure how toys worked back then. But the deeper conceit is Hollander's obsession with the mechanics of poetry. You know, just like in Zodiac, obsession is an essential component in any poet's psychological makeup. In Richard Hugo's The Triggering Town, which is another Bible for poets I highly recommend, he writes about the ways our obsessions lead to poems, and uh, this is a quote from that book. Your triggering subjects are those that ignite your need for words. When you're honest to your feelings, that triggering town chooses you. Your words used your way will generate your meanings. Your obsessions lead you to your vocabulary. Your way of writing locates, even creates, your inner life. The relation of you to your language gains power. The relation of you to the triggering subject weakens. So he goes on after that to argue the ways in which we handle our obsessions on the page determine our presence as either public or private poets. Uh, that is, poets who want to be understood and those who would prefer to preserve their mysteries. Or, as Hugo explains, with a public poet, the intellectual and emotional contents of the words are the same for the reader as for the writer. With a private poet, and most good poets of the last century have been private poets, the words, at least certain key words, mean something to the poet they don't mean to the reader. So simply put, we could call Billy Collins, who we heard at the beginning of the show, a very public poet. You know, his, his words are our words in that way. They all mean the same things. Whereas Harriet Mullen, I would consider a private poet. Her words may have deeper coded meanings than we might have. And as for Hollander, I'll let the listener judge uh, this elegy that I'm about to read for Steampump, a.k.a. Auden. And this is titled January 15th. Steampump is gone. He died quietly in his hotel room and his sleep. 
His cover people attended to everything. What had to be burned was burned. He taught me, as you surely know, all that I know. Yet I had to pass him by in the square at evening, in the soft light of wrought iron lamps and the rich, cheerful shadows, which rose up from the stones to meet it, without even our eyes having touched, without acknowledgement. And thereby, of course, we were working together. What kind of work is this, for which if we were to touch in the darkness, it would be without feeling the other there? It might help to know whether steam pumps dying was part of the work or not. I shall not be told, I know. Until next time, this is Cupcake. I do like that as well. I yeah. love, I, you, you don't even have to really know what it's about to get no. the, the emotion, do you? Mm. No, no, it's it's all there. That's it's, And I think that's what makes the book work so well is that even if you, like me, cannot break the codes that, uh, that Hollander explains in detail in his preface and then in his end notes the the pleasure in the language is, is so rich and the emotion behind it is so clear too i wonder if a lot of the appeal of, of the zodiac and a lot of the appeal of poetry is that at heart we don't really want to know this the story the message we don't really want to crack it having said that going back to um, billy collins and the poem that we read at the start and and knowing that you're you're a teacher as well adam do you often find students do in fact <laughs> approach the poem as poems that need to be cracked constantly and, and and i blame this entirely on our educational system and that you know that i'm a, i'm a part of a willing part of a paid part of we're teaching students to tie their subjects to chairs and to torture them rather than enjoy their beauty or or wait for them to reveal themselves i'm i'm always encouraging my students to focus on the pleasure that language offers to start with that and then maybe work towards meaning later i mean meaning may come or not at all but the pleasure of the language will always see us through. You know, I think there's a there's an impatience as well that comes when uh, we present art as a code to be cracked, because then there's no longer uh, an understanding that it should just be sat with rather than analyzed under the microscope. Mm. And, and of course, a code implies that there's one way of right. looking at something. Uh, yeah. uh, there's a right answer. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, you know, anybody who's ever read poetry will tell you that what's really enjoyable about are the different readings, the clashing readings. I, and I kind of feel part of the delight and pleasure of the Zodiac is that there's clashing readings in this as well. It's not merely that we're not going to get to the bottom of this mystery. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's that there's alternative reasons, motivations, pressures, external, internal going on that, that make it hard to see what's going on. But we know there's something good. <laughs> There's something interesting going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting, too, to think about that, you know, the the ways in which we read into either a text or a film say just as much, if not more, about us than, than the, the subject there, right? Like the, uh, the the difference in opinion. I mean, that certainly makes for horse races, but that also that makes for uh, conversation. And I think what I love about poetry is I can return to a poem years after an encounter and have a completely different opinion on it or a different understanding of it. I mean, they, these things, I think great works of art tend to age with us. And that's what's so rewarding about our relationship with them. Foreman says that you're ambidextrous. No, that's untrue. You can't write with both hands. My teachers tried to make me when I was a kid, but I couldn't. I'm left-handed. He also said that you made statements about killing school children. That is... That is horrible. That is that's a horrible thing to say. So you aren't angry about being fired from Valley Springs for touching your students? 
I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Well, that leads me nicely on to the next part, because something of that happened with me with Zodiac uh, this time. So that's the third time I've seen Zodiac. And my reading of Zodiac, I think, this time is obviously influenced by the fact I knew I was going to be talking about it on a poetry stroke movie <laughs> uh, podcast. You may think in the next few minutes after I get through explaining what I'm about to say that I'm, I'm, I've gone as crazy as um, Graysmith does <laughs> or Avery does towards the end of the film. But stay with me on this reading because right. I think there's, there's, there's a lot to it. I couldn't help but notice while watching it that Zodiac, one of his ways of operating is that he sends letters to newspapers talking about his work, I guess, and, and including codes right. uh, that you know, he wants people to break uh, or try to. And I, can't ask, I was watching and I was thinking, isn't this a bit like poets sending cover letters plus their poems <laughs> to to magazines. Just to, just to be clear, are you comparing poets to a serial killer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course not. Okay, Why would I do that? <laughs> but there's definitely something to it. You know, it's, it's like he's submitting his work. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, the more I looked into this and the more the film went along, you know, I was furiously writing along in my notebook because it, it was just triggering ideas almost frame by frame. And I ended up thinking, this is a very powerful metaphor, Zodiac, the story of Zodiac. is a very powerful metaphor for how some poets, not all poets, hashtag not all poets, it's a, it's a perfect metaphor for how some poets attempt to control the interpretation of their work mm. and how critics deal with work that resists interpretation. And I, I think it also shows a tool that this takes on the interpretive and creative temperament. First things first, right? I couldn't help but notice Zodiac is a very writerly text. Mm-hmm. So what, what do I mean by that? The film's four central characters, Tosky, the detective, Avery, the journalist, Graysmith, the cartoonist, and Zodiac, they're all writers. Now, Avery and Graysmith obviously are writers. Avery was a journalist, and Graysmith went on to write the book about Zodiac. Right. I think in some ways the weirdest part of the film, and that's really saying something, is the part where you learn Tosky, who's played by Mark Ruffalo, has been writing anonymous fan letters praising himself to, of all people, I mean, this is, you couldn't make this up, could you? The journalist that he was writing to was Armistead Maupin. (laughs) The writer Armistead Maupin. (laughs) Tales of the City, Armistead Maupin. So Tosky was writing him fan letters anonymously saying, I really like this character who's based on this detective guy, have more of him in Tales of the City. And then another letter came in from Zodiac after a while. Right. Uh, Armiston Maupin actually identified uh, uh, Tosky and said that he thought maybe this new um, Zodiac letter was a hoax and was actually from Tosky. And because of that, he lost his place <laughs> on the investigative team. It's a weird moment, but you know, it does show yet again another yeah. of the main characters writing, doing, right. taking part in a fiction. Mm-hmm. Saying all that about Avery and Graysmith and Tosky, that's interesting, but it's really Zodiac who captures my attention here. Don't you think Zodiac's practice of sending his letters and coding messages to newspapers is not unlike a poet sending his poems into a magazine? His cover letters are attempts to control interpretation of his work, Hmm. and following on from that, isn't Avery a bit like a crack? And a jaded one at that. There's a, there's a brilliant scene, I think it's about an hour into the film, yeah. when news comes in of yet another letter from Zodiac. Zodiac becomes quite the letter writer at one part. 
mm. for this film. Graysmith excitedly tells uh, Avery, as played by Robert Downey Jr., that another letter's came in, and Avery has this very affected, unimpressed, he says, fantastic. And I just thought, that is the, <laughs> the critic developing a critical distance from his... Another his submission. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know how you were talking about code breakers and code makers? Yeah. yeah. I, I was writing at one point in my notebook, pattern maker and pattern breaker. Mm, okay, yeah. And I thought, Zodiac, you might call him like a paradigmatic poet, a poet who creates a paradigm anyway. He's like a significant poet, right? In that first he creates his work. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, he also creates the, the criteria by which he's appreciated. He creates the taste by which he's appreciated. But like any good poet, he's also a restless creator. And as soon as he's created the paradigm by which he's appreciated, he Mm -hmm. then wants to break it and Mm -hmm. do something else. He wants to go on to a new paradigm, challenging those who've been following his work. So you see this. You see this, for example, I guess Eliot does it. T.S. Eliot does it. He creates through modernism, the early poems, and then he has his religious poems. There's the four quartets period. He creates a paradigm and then he breaks a paradigm. And Zodiac is very much the same. He starts out by focusing on couples in which the male survives and which the woman in the couple dies. Mm-hmm. That seems to be his MO. And then suddenly he kills a taxi driver for no yeah. good reason. And also his murders were located outside San Francisco. Suddenly mm-hmm. he's killing people in the heart of the city. And it throws people. If you think of this from a poetic point of view, if you see that Zodiac is kind of maybe like a frustrated artist, this is exactly what significant artists do all the time. They create the paradigm, then they break the paradigm. They try and throw people. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the person who gets this is Graysmith. And that's because he's a creative spirit too. You know, he's he's a cartoonist rather than a writer first. He's got that sort of artistic then. There's a sort of minor scene at the start that I think Fincher put in to, to underline this. It's the bit where you see Graysmith pass a bar and he sees journalists inside having fun, but he keeps going. He doesn't go in to talk to them because he's not like them. Mm-hmm. But he understands Zodiac because they have the same kind of puzzle-orientated mind. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, returning to the idea that Avery is a critic, mm-hmm. much like critics or academics, he's very interested in origins and what you might call unpublished work. And he tracks down what turns out to be Zodiac's first uncredited murder, an apprentice piece. <laughs> I know I'm starting to sound a bit like Graysmith when he starts going on about <laughs> lunar cycles, you know. But when I was watching it, I just couldn't get the idea out of my head. And this is probably pushing it quite a bit, but I'm going to go with it. And I'd ask you to go with me on it. Please, I'm, I'm here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're here for this. Zodiac, after his initial killing spree, mm-hmm. starts to take credit for murders that he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, oh, well, this is maybe a bit like plagiarism. But then I've already mentioned T.S. Eliot. It made me start to think about Eliot's uh, use of quotation in The Wasteland. And I I wonder if Zodiac, Mm -hmm. he he knows what the public wants and what they want is a murder epic. Mm -hmm. And so he uses the work of other random killers. He takes credit for them to give his own work a greater heft, to give it more sense of dimension, more darkness, more fear. And there's that moment in the film where Avery says to Graysmith, he proves to Graysmith that some of those murders that Zodiac is taking credit for, he couldn't have committed. And Graysmith is disappointed. And I felt that was a very revealing moment. I I think Graysmith stands in for people watching or the public. There is something terrible in yourself that thinks you want it to be even worse than it already is. Zodiac quoting these other murders is, is aware that other work can give his work. Right. A, greater, a greater heft and dimension. Yeah. 
if these other murders can be attributed to him, then you can collect everything under that Zodiac umbrella, that these that there aren't these outlying mysteries out there. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh... Okay, look at this letter again, the part about Kathleen Jones. Tell me what facts he gives. A woman and her baby abducted. Mm -hmm. Fact. Uh, uh, the car on fire. Okay, now. Look at the article from the B. Um, Seating up. Everything in the letter already appeared in the article. And he's done it before. Officer Richard Radatich shot sitting in his car. So he had claimed that he shot someone in their car. Mm -hmm. A couple days after this article came out, the police already had somebody in custody. Zodiac didn't do it, but took credit for it anyway, because he's in it for the press. He even stole his symbol. What? Yeah, shit. Uh, if I show you something, you promise not to tell anyone? Who would I tell? Okay, totally solid point. That's the only place that word and that symbol ever appeared together before the letters. The guy stole his logo off a watch. I've been somebody who's killed 13 people. He claims he's killed 13 people, but which ones can we actually confirm? There's three in Vallejo, one in Berryessa, the cabbie, that's it. Bobby, you almost look disappointed. I, I love poets. I, I love them in person. I love them through my reading. But there's a, you know, stop me if I'm wrong, but like many of the characters in the film, they're like poets, or at least you know, a particular kind of poet or a, a, an image of a particular kind of poet. Hmm. And what I mean by that is they're obsessional. Yep. They rely on drink as a crutch. <laughs> they're, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're negligent of the people in their lives as they concentrate on their work. I think those kind of characteristics, you know, obviously, again, yeah. hashtag not all poets. Right, right. Yeah, of course. But, you know, th there's a reason why those certain images have been attached to poets over the years. They do have some damaging behaviors you know i i think your your thesis is a fascinating thesis here man <laughs> now well you know i'm gonna this is my cherry on the top now uh which is i think even zodiac disappearing eventually feeds mm -hmm. in to this because uh, it reminds me of writers who for reasons that are never revealed absent themselves and stop writing when the mm -hmm. writers have in mind are people like B. Traven, who did uh, the treasure of the sierra madre right yeah jd salinger obviously Mm -hmm. Or in poetic terms, the French poet Rombaud. Mm -hmm. You know that Rombaud, um, after a, an initial period of being a poetic prodigy, stopped writing poetry and disappeared and didn't reappear in France again until the very end of his life. Um, mm. There's lots of stories about what he did during those 30 or 40 years. Uh, I think he was gun running in North Africa, wasn't he? That's the yeah. one that the, the biographers currently think. Seeing as we've mentioned Rumble, I wanted to read um, an extract from A Season in Hell, which of course could have been the subtitle of the Zodiac, the movie. And as I read it, I feel that it's almost like it could be taken from the mind of Zodiac, this, um, this first part of A Season in Hell. Once, if I remember rightly, my life was a feast at which all hearts opened and all wines flowed. One evening I sat beauty on my knees and I found her bitter and I reviled her. I armed myself against justice. I fled. Oh, witches, oh, misery, oh, hatred. It was to you that my treasure was entrusted. I managed to erase in my mind all human hope. Upon every joy, in order to strangle it, I made the muffled bound of the wild beast. I called up executioners in order to bite their gun butts as I died. I called up plagues in order to suffocate myself with sand and blood. Bad luck was my god. I stretched myself out in the mud. 
I dried myself in the air of crime, and I played some fine tricks on madness. And spring brought me the appalling laugh of the idiot. Hmm. But just lately, finding myself on the point of uttering my last croak, I thought of looking for the key to the old feast where I might perhaps find my appetite again. Charity is this key. This inspiration proves that I have been dreaming. You'll go on being a hyena, etc., cries indignantly the demon who crowned me with such pleasing poppies. Reach death with all your appetites, your selfishness, and all the deadly sins. Ah, I've brought along too many. But, my dear Satan, I beg you, and I, little less inflamed. And while we are waiting for the few little overdue cowardly actions, you, who appreciate in a writer the absence of any descriptive or instructive talent, for you, I tear off these few hideous pages from my notebook of a damned soul. Now, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. kind of think that's like, uh, you know, parts of that could have been taken straight from the mind of Zodiac and parts of it, you know, the tearing off pages from your notebook. It's almost like yeah. his practice, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, you, and to your point, too, I mean, if, if Rambo did indeed end up as a gun runner in North Africa, he may well have become moved from poet to serial killer on, on some level there. Yeah, but, yeah. Not to stand I, a good man's name, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Rambo. Sorry. <laughs> said, I think, yeah. <laughs> said no one ever. Um, I should just say before we move on, that's from uh, my Penguin Classics um, version of Arthur Rambo's collected poems. It was translated by a chap called Oliver Bernard. Hmm. Now, one of the great themes of the film is mystery and how to live with it. You and I are both big fans of the TV show The Leftovers, aren't we? And, Absolutely. And, one of the great things about The Leftovers is it never tries to explain its central mystery. And mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that because there's so many mysteries in life. And the direction narrative usually takes is to erase mysteries. It'll set mysteries up and it'll then get rid of mysteries. And I th think this is one of the great things about poetry, I think. Poetry is anti-narrative. It can be obviously narrative, yeah. but it doesn't depend on narrative. And so therefore it has an easier relationship, I think, with mystery than say films do, which as a commercial art has to satisfy people. And maybe that's what went wrong with Zodiac at the box office. People people wanted a, a solution and the film didn't give it. So Zodiac resists giving a definite solution and I think good poems do the same. A poem that's easily understood, it'll amuse you for a moment, but it's not going to linger in your mind in the same way that The Wasteland does or, or Walter Delamere's The Listeners. And I, I think the same is true as Zodiac. I'm, I'm not one of those people who are massively interested in, in serial killers. They're usually just sad little men, you know, like the Unabomber right. or, or Son of Sam. Mm -hmm. But there's something about the Zodiac killings, at, at least as represented in the films, that's, that holds the attention in a way that those others don't. And I, I think for me, that's what I really love about poetry. It, it's a way to live with mystery. How did, what's your take on that, Adam? All I ask of art is that it haunt me on some level. You know, that's when you know you've been you've been impacted by it. But I, I think that poetry is not just a, a way of, of helping us to, to learn to live with mystery, but also a way of preserving that mystery, holding it to the light to better explore it. You know, because if there are no answers, we should at least have some really good questions. And, and what powers me through any mystery or life itself is, is curiosity. And I've yet to encounter a form that better rewards curiosity than poetry. The really mysterious aspect of the story in Zodiac, it's not who is the killer. Mm -hmm. It's what drives people. We only know what drives Zodiac, but what is driving Avery and Graysmith and, to a lesser extent, Tosky to, to destroy their lives and careers? They're smart people. They're talented people. Why do they, do they cash that in? 
if the killer ever was revealed, he would be like, you know, the Sunny Sam killer, just a sad, right. you know, mentally troubled person. Why yeah. why are they doing that? And I think that is a real mystery, the real mystery of the film. Why does Grace Smith keep going with the case after everyone else has abandoned it? Chloe Sevigny, who plays his wife, even says at one point, why? Why do you need to do this? And he can't give her an answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the that's the toughest question there. Or, or maybe it's it's very simple in the sense that these people are just looking for I mean, like any of us, we're looking for purpose, right? And as so long as the mystery goes unsolved, that sense of purpose grows greater, which I think feeds that obsession. You know, because there would be nothing more disappointing than for Graysmith to ultimately find out who Zodiac was. And it's just some unassuming, you know, notary public who lived down the block from him or something like that. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm thinking too about your, your thesis regarding poets as, as, as being like Zodiac and submitting in that cover letter and uh, basically kind of explaining why they should take your work seriously and then the work itself and then the questions you might get back. And and the mildly threatening air as well. If you don't appreciate a person's genius, not you, Adam. But no, just, no, no. I mean, you know, just I'm, saying. I'm thinking of uh, a couple of years ago. I had a, a literary journal get back in touch with me, and they were interested in two pieces. But their question was, "Are we in the realm of Guillaume Apollinaire or Wallace Stevens?" Because they they could not uh, determine what the poems were actually about. And those are two pretty interesting polls there. And I, in the end, I failed to. Uh, to explain what either poem meant. And so both poems went uh, untaken. But it was an interesting moment where I, I was having to defend the meaning of uh, something that I probably didn't fully understand myself. That might be the issue, is that there may not be a, a me The poet may not even know what the meaning is behind them. Well, it's interesting you should mention that. Last summer, I was working on a series of um, live-streamed uh, shows, um, Macker to Macker, and one of our guests was Don Patterson. And he said mm. at one point, you know, he knows he's onto something good when there's something in the poem that he doesn't understand but likes. Yes, absolutely. That's what we're looking for. We want to we want to confuse ourselves. <laughs> and, but good confusion. You know, it's like oh, there's something there that I want to keep looking at, and I might never get to the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah. But we've created. If you can create your own mystery within the poem, I think then you're onto something because then that that fulfills that purpose. That gives you reason to to keep searching. Okay. Zodiac had to have known Darlene Farron, right? Yes, because of the phone calls on the night of her murder. Because of the Vallejo file, we know that Darlene knew a man named Lee? Yes. So all coincidence aside, Robert, how can you be sure that Lee Allen is a Lee from this file? Now, Vallejo is a small town, but it's not that small. How do you put the two of them together? This is a case that's covered both Northern and Southern California, with victims and suspects spread over hundreds of miles. Would you agree? Yes. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. Arthur Lee Allen lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door, that is less than 50 yards. Is that true? I've walked it. Jesus Christ. So? The prints, the handwriting. I'm not asking you as a cop, but I am a cop. I can't prove this. Just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. Easy, dirty, Harry. I mean, one of the 
the things that we've sort of avoided talking about really in this podcast is um, poems that are about murder mm. and murderers. Because, uh, I mean, there's there's massive amounts we could talk about. I mean, oh, just yeah. murder ballads in themselves would be oh, a, yeah. a whole podcast series to themselves. Yeah. There's, you know, it goes from murder ballads to Browning's My Last Duchess to mm. Frank Bedart's Herbert White, um, which is yeah. one of the few poems I know that's actually been adapted into... A short film, um, James Franco turned into a short film. You can find it on YouTube, but yeah. I would say to you, don't watch it. It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, is there anything that James Franco won't adapt to film? That's not <laughs> well, quite no. Um, I mean, he did. He did it. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't watch it. If I was you. It's actually. It's a horrible poem, and it's a horrible film. And um, if you, you know, if you must watch it, then go ahead. But I'm, I'm telling you as a friend, it's probably not a good idea. I will take that advice to heart. Thank you, sir. No worries. And now, as promised, here's Diana Maria Delgado. Diana is the literary director of the Poetry Center at the University of Arizona. This is Diana Maria Delgado, author of Tracing the Horse, a debut book of poems, that follows the coming of age of a young Mexican-American woman living in the San Gabriel Valley of Southern California. I think of myself as a film person, and I watch a lot of movies, and I find myself drawn to movies that privilege feeling over intellect. Films that imagine deeper states of sensuality and pathos, which for me is poetry. A few films that I find remarkably poetic, um, for example, are Juan Car Wise, 2046, Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves, Silent Light by Carlos Regadas, Love by Gaspar Noé. But um, aside from this really short list, um, because I could list so many more, is Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula, which stands out for me as one of the most poetic films um, from the 1990s. Coppola's spoken about how important it was to make this film, um, but to do it in a way that was more connected to the original vampire novel, which was written in 1897 and is an epistolary book. Um, and while Coppola's version does stay true to the book, Coppola obviously had other things on his mind while making this movie, um, most of which has to do with the following list. Doomed romantic love, doomed sexy love, seduction, the Kama Sutra, eroticism, eternal life, women in gardens, sheer nightgowns, blood, suicide, fate, wolves, tragedy, wolves having sex in gardens, resurrection, carriages, women kissing in gardens, orgies, death, thirst, and Winona Ryder as Mina, the princess pleading to Dracula, take me away from all this death. This is a highly sex movie, but it's also romantic and poetic, and it places us in a world of doomed but destined love, um, destined love that would then be doomed. And I also want to note the poetry in the movie um, also comes out in the dialogue, like Gary Oldman as a handsome Romanian count confessing to Mina, I have crossed oceans of time to find you. And then he turns her tears into diamonds. Diamonds, yes. Dracula is one of those poetic movies that I lean into while writing um, the following prose poem that I'm going to read titled, Who Makes Love to Us After We Die? 
And I also managed to weave in another anecdote, which is likely just a rumor, but intriguing nonetheless, about a suicide on the set of one of my other all-time favorite movies um, that I find very poetic, uh, The Wizard of Oz. Who makes love to us after we die? I turn on the radio and hear horses, girls becoming women after tragedy. Talk about dreams. His heart was covered in a thin shell the color of the moon, and when touched, I'd grow old. The best movies have a philosophy. Dorothy, after being subjected to witch-on-girl violence, is rescued. Someone hung himself on that set. A man who loved but couldn't have a certain woman. Management said it was a bird. The best movies begin with an encounter and end with someone setting someone free. In Coppola's version of Dracula, my favorite scene is when the camera chases two women through a garden and watches them kiss. I made love to a man who asked, after many years, for me to choke him, so that later, cleaning a kitchen cabinet, I read a recipe he'd written into wood, and I had a hard time believing him. So, Colin, what are we doing next time? Well, next time, folks, uh, hide behind the sofa because we're going to be handling hauntings, hidden histories, and private hell as we go behind the front door of an average American home and discover Poltergeist, Toe Pooper's 1982 classic, here next time on Poetry Goes to the Movies. Mm-hmm.